Welcome to episode 95 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. And we are recording in our living room in 7th Ward, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Swamp Flicks. Is that the ASMR version? Swamp Flicks. I'm not doing ASMR. <laughs> I just have a softer voice. You know what you are doing? Hmm. Festival recaps again. Ooh! Ooh, yay! <laughs> it's the one time of year I really have to do the podcast. Yeah, I, I kind of corner you because you're my festival buddy. Mm-hmm. And we went to the 30th annual New Orleans Film Festival. It's true. The festival was sometime in mid-October. But we're recording in early November. So we're just taking the whole second half of the year to stew on these movies. You know, we need the time yeah. to, you know, analyze and decompress. And write 15 movie reviews. You know, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we took it pretty easy this year, I think. Yeah, no, um, usually between the two of us, we each have six or seven passes. And then you also, thanks to the generosity of the New Orleans Film Fest, get a press pass. So, you know, technically I have like 12 passes to myself and you have unlimited passes. And we try to use as many of those as possible. This year, you know, I'm taking classes at Tulane and... Didn't really have as much time. Neither of us wanted to take off work to go see stuff. So, yeah, we just kind of took it easy this year. Yeah, you know, one or two movies a day, just just 10 movies in a week. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> oof, slacking. <laughs> also, a lot of them were around the corner from our house on Broad at the Broad Theater. Which was very convenient. Super Thank you, convenient. New Orleans Film Fest. Thank you for hosting it at the Broad. Thank you, Broad Theater. Y'all are the best. Yeah, and they put it in the nice uh, big theater there, too. The uh... Theater 4. Oh, yeah. Luxury. Mm. Love Theater 4. <laughs> Which has since been taken over by sold-out screenings of Parasite every single day. Yep. <laughs> Good on them. How was your festival experience this year, even though it was a lighter load? I liked it a lot. Yeah, no, I I didn't see a huge number of things. You know, I only got to see one of the shorts packages. I like going to see the experimental shorts every year, but I, I skipped it this year. Same with animated shorts. I didn't see a huge number of the feature films. There's a few I missed that I did really want to see, but I, I don't know. I feel pretty good about the group I saw. What about you? I felt good, too. We only did go to one shorts package, but it was a really good one. It's a really good one. Uh, it's called Queer Bodies, Queer Selves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just a group of, I mean, as the title suggests, it's a group of like queer filmmakers making films specifically about their bodies and like queer body types and mm-hmm. like what that means. So, you know, kind of a loose, topical collection of movies that... You know, allowed uh, a lot of experimentation between each of them to be their own thing. I yeah, thought. no, I, I mean, I, I had all of these were made before they came up with this thematic grouping, and I think they all went really well together for the most part. I think, um, yeah, they were all exploring different notions of what the body is and what the queer body is and queerness in general. Um, and also, it had a really great Q and A. Yeah, it did. Um, Mamone from Queer Appalachia came to do the Q and A, and I have to say they were so well prepared, and I love that. Usually, Q and As are kind of train wrecks, and Mamone was really prepared. They watched all the shorts twice. They came up with two questions per filmmaker, and they just went down the row and asked each filmmaker a question. Then they came back and asked another question, and then they opened it up to the audience. And I thought that was a really lovely way of doing it. The questions were super thoughtful. Um, Queer Appalachia is really cool, and you should follow them on Instagram and help raise money for them to uh, help with their harm reduction advocacy that they've been doing. Are they mostly an Instagram account? Is that what Queer Appalachia is? Queer Appalachia is an Instagram account. Um, I don't know how else they exist. I mean, obviously, they are a group of people. Mm -hmm. It's a collective. They do harm reduction. They do advocacy for, like, West Virginia coal miners who have been unfairly just not paid or not taken care of by their companies at the same time. We're like, oh, more coal. And it's like, no, no, no. We just need to take care of the people who currently work there. Like, we're not even paying the people, and we're, like, trying to reopen these mines. So, yeah, they just do a lot of really good advocacy work in the region. That's cool. In an area of the country that usually does not get a lot of, like, great attention, and we tend to ignore that there are queer people who live there. They seemed really familiar with the uh, director and subject of the first short in the package. Yeah, Bodies Uh, Like Oceans. Yeah, and Bodies Like Oceans was one of my favorite things we saw the entire festival, like, across all formats. I mean, I would say that... You know, no offense to the other shorts, but I would say Bodies Like Oceans was the standout of the queer shorts package. So Bodies Like Oceans is a short film about a photographer named Shuglet. Their thesis, their inspiration for their photography is fat bodies 
to say that fat bodies are not beautiful is, you know, just this like Western myth. And so they want to help retrain the eye to appreciate fat bodies. So they, you know, will juxtapose fat bodies with other beautiful things so that we can like go, oh, that is beautiful. So this must be beautiful. And I, I think the way they shot this short documentary about Triglett was really cool. Yeah, the director's name is Corey Kay. Uh, the photographer, if you look up their name on um, their like art website, it's Shook McDaniel. Mm-hmm. It's an easy way to Google them. Yeah, Shuglet is their Instagram. Instagram sorry. handle. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. I wasn't familiar <laughs> yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, and if you see the movie, if you're at all familiar with um, Shug's, you know, photography, the instant it shows up, you know what you're watching. Like their work is very recognizable because it's underwater art photography of naked, usually femme or non-binary like bodies swimming in like very clear crisp i want to say like clean detail like it's it's very like formal even though the subjects are usually like these punks who are not usually presented in that way usually punk art is very like uh whatever cheap camera or format cinema verite like kitchen sink realism and this is romantic but still like there's no soft focus on these shots it's usually yeah shot very crisply hyperrealism, but very romantic compositions, despite the chaotic nature of underwater photography. Yeah. And the work doesn't really have to vocalize that much. Like, Suge does explain in the movie, like, what their concept is about, you know, presenting self-proclaimed fat bodies in this, like, beautiful, fine art way. But they don't even have to explain that much, because as soon as you're looking at it, you're like, wow, this is just gorgeously presented. Like, Mm -hmm. it is one of my favorite things I saw at the fest, just because on a visual level, everything just looks so pretty in it. Yeah. Also, like underwater photography and these like beautiful kind of ocean sounds. It almost sounds like manatee sounds. And there's like these like sea manatees yeah. mixed in with the kids under the water. It just looks really cool. Yeah, I was just really impressed just by the visual presentation of it. And it just looked like their photography in motion. Yeah, no, it was, it was a beautifully shot little documentary. They obviously were really thoughtful about their choice of camera and you know how they were going to shoot it and their lighting to make that documentary look as crisp and beautiful and as professional as possible i mean this is not like some little diy punk project they wanted this to be recognized and played in galleries and played at festivals across the country so they really put that effort you know into making it as beautiful as they possibly could and it's the only thing we're covering today that won an audience award so it, it went over like gangbusters yeah no we all liked it so i'm proud of us And the second short in the package is called I Have to Think of Us as Separate People. Mm -hmm. And I'd say it's kind of the opposite of that formally where um, it's scuzzy, like celluloid, maybe eight millimeter cameras. I think he said eight or 16 millimeter. It was actually shot on film. I know that much. It was shot on handheld. And that looks more like punk stuff, like Mm -hmm. kind of no wave uh, New York photography from like the 80s, you know? Yeah, there's a certain cut up Burroughs quality to it as well. And this was a collaboration between Steven Ira and Chris Bernston, who are two men who are in love with each other. Uh, one is cis and one is trans. And one of them is a photographer and a you know filmmaker by trade, and the other is a poet. And it's kind of like a equal artistic collaboration in that way. Um, like you said, it has kind of a Burroughs quality where there's like these snippets of dialogue and these snippets of imagery that are overlapping and confusing on purpose. Mm-hmm. Basically they're filming each other's naked bodies in bed lovingly. And you just see them sort of mixing limbs and, you know, chests and butts and legs and everything else in the sort of like confusing mesh until you can't tell which one of their bodies is the others. And the dialogue overlaps. So you don't know who's speaking about over which body, which I don't know. I thought that was a really like great way of presenting like them working through like, what are we as a couple? Like, how do we identify? Like, obviously they're a gay couple, but, you know, they're just talking about how bodies are weird and their bodies are different from one another and, you know, all these cool things. Yeah, he talked about in the Q&A how, you know, they're two gay men without a template in art. Like, there's no other fictional characters or, Mm -hmm. like, famous relationships of one cis and one trans man together. There's no art representing what that coupling looks like. And they were like trying to reconstruct what that looks like on camera. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of La Benor, the uh, Agnes Varda film. Mm-hmm. There's a sex Happiness, scene in that yeah. where there's like a lot of quick cuts between their two bodies while they're having sex. And it becomes really confused what you're looking at in any given moment. This felt like diving into that sex scene and like 
making it even weirder. Like, yeah. con- just very confusing, disorienting thing and sort of, like, questioning why we draw a difference between those two different body types. I don't know. It's yeah. really interesting stuff. And it was really fun and beautifully shot. Loved it. Uh, the next one was Janice, which I didn't really have much... Uh, yeah. going on in that one for me i mean i didn't love this one i thought it was kind of sloppily put together and then in the q a they did reveal that they were making a more traditional style documentary then they found out that the person who was their subject had two other documentaries in the works about them specifically and so then they were like okay well instead of making a straightforward documentary about this person in their life maybe let's make an experimental art film and so they took all the footage they already had and kind of recut things but you know as a result going back and creating a new film and editing is really hard to do and hard to pull off yeah. so it reminded me a little bit of uh, Cassandra El Exotico which we had similar problems with earlier this year yeah uh, it, that was a feature but it should be like a sort of slice of life documentary about this like subject. In this case, it's a, I think it's a non-binary drag queen in Mexico City. I'm trying yeah, to piece this together through yeah, a very confusing Yeah, because again, imagery. they didn't give us a straightforward story about the person. They were giving us, yeah, an experimental piece. But yeah, they seem non-binary. They perform as a drag performer and a dancer. And they also had founded a voguing house in Mexico City. But all you see is snippets of them in the club, in their apartment, and on the street. And it's just kind of a jumbled mess. And I don't know, it doesn't really have any kind of like point to it really yeah there was nothing new that they were saying about like queer bodies specifically or this person specifically i didn't really i didn't get a strong sense of what the scene is like in mexico city it was a good effort but ultimately it wasn't our favorite but you know again it was in a very very strong lineup of other things the eddies the last film um, (laughs) from director madsen minix was much stronger in like a clear vision and like purpose and just something i've never seen before yeah that one also started off very experimental to me at least because there was two parallel narratives they were more or less unrelated about two different people named eddie and at first i didn't quite get what was going on and then it starts to coalesce like by the time you get to the midway of the short you know it really started to make sense and, and blossom into something really cool the director is a trans man from new york mm-hmm. and he moves down to the south i believe in West Memphis or something like that? I knew it was definitely shot in Memphis. Okay. Because they were talking about the Memphis waterways. One of the eddies was like a local expert on the irrigation flood control system of Memphis. Right. So yeah, there's like a sort of dual narrative between that man that they're under the sewer with and he's sort of like over explaining this history of sewer facts that the director's not going to remember the details of. And it's not even just the sewer. It's just like every city lives on top of a series of tunnels and we don't think about these tunnels and like what they mean and like there used to be bayous that ran through our cities and there used to be rivers and creeks and so he's like giving him all of these waterway facts of all the different like bayous that have been like subsumed into the city's like underground canal system and so they're exploring this like circulatory system for the city like splunking like the paris cave system the like underground system there So they're doing this, you know, urban exploration thing. And then the other Eddie is a Craigslist hookup that uh, the director pays to jerk off with a gun and films it for erotic purposes. And the two men are like around the same age. They're like much older, like gray haired people who we don't see their faces. Yeah, we don't see either Eddie. We just hear their voices. And you just start to draw sort of like natural parallels between these two older men and their relationship with this filmmaker. And it's like a mix of documentary footage and fictional staged footage. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you sort of have to draw your own conclusions from all this like eroticized gun and war imagery and this like history of the city imagery, which has its own like unspoken history of violence to it as well, I think. Like you said earlier, it took me a little while to get my footing with it, which is kind of tough for a short film because you don't have a lot of time to adjust. But yeah, I thought it was an interesting parallel mm-hmm. between these two characters. and Yeah, and I thought the ending was really strong. There's a scene where, you know, due to the nature of Craigslist hookups, like, as a viewer, you always feel a certain amount of trepidation for, like, what's going on, especially, like, in this case, if it's documentary or, in this case, staged reenactment of something that happened. You know, you worry a little. You're like, oh, no, is everything going to turn out okay? And then when it turns out not just okay, but great, you're like, oh, Wow. Like, you feel a certain sense of triumph. So yeah, no, I just, I like this one. There's an element of danger, and then it turns out to be really, really sweet and really cool. 
And it's the only erect ejaculating cock I saw on the screen at this film festival. Yeah, this film festival did not have that many erect ejaculating cocks. It was kind of a disappointment. So you got to give it up fest. to the Eddies to bring that yeah. to the film festival. <laughs> but yeah, I think the clear like standout was maybe Bodies Like Oceans. And I think if you can't find that, at least look up Suge McDaniel's photography or Suglet on Instagram. Uh, the work is just really stunning and beautiful. But all these movies had something. I thought, yeah. I thought it was a nice little shorts block. It was one of those film fest experiences where you see something on the screen that you're not likely to see in a theatrical environment. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I love about New Orleans Film Fest is that some of these films, yeah, never make it to distribution. And short films especially, it's really hard to get distribution for them. So the fact that I get to see so many of them here is just really thrilling for me. Uh, and I feel like I got to learn about a bunch of really cool artists. And, you know, now I'm following most of them on Instagram um, just because I want to see what else they do in the future so that I can, you know, seek out their films next time they're at Film Fest. Um, yeah, there would be about four or five video cassette recorders. Uh, most of them attached to screens at various places in the house. She usually sat in a room with two TVs going, usually with um, ideologically opposing cable channels kind of blaring at each other and recording all of them pretty much at the same time. Imagine okay. kind of piles of video cassettes precariously balanced near uh, several machines. I think you've got okay. the, the, the gist of it. So kind of like shorts, documentaries are something that like have a hard time getting like proper distribution sometimes, especially like DIY, like indie documentaries. Most of the other queer content I saw at the festival were documentaries. Uh, one was called Peer Kids, which was one of those like queer homeless youth documentaries like advocating for just attention for these kids who are like living on the streets in new york and just like they're called peer kids because they literally just live at the pier yeah uh, on the water i've seen a lot of stuff like this before like kiki a couple years ago that like paris is burning update uh, and also check it we saw that one that was mm -hmm. like a those are the dc kids yeah and that was like a gang violence rehabilitation doc yeah it was a white savior thing where they were coming in and saving all these like queer black kids in dc didn't love check it but in this case it's not really advocating for a solution the way those two are that those are like advocating for like specific political corrections to this uh you know homeless queer youth problem that's been going on for decades and will probably go on forever in this one it's just sort of following these kids around and documenting that they exist and they're still out there and the problem's ongoing if you watch enough of these they sort of all blend together and i hate to say that but in this case, I still appreciated it just for like doing that work of being like, hey, this is still a thing. Yeah. If you're a queer person of color, much higher likeliness that you'll be kicked out on the street than if you were any other, you know, combination of things. So, you know, not fun, kind of a bummer, but uh, interesting, at least. Also kind of cool because they shouted out The Queen, that uh, oh, yeah. 60s documentary we just watched. Mm -hmm. It's one of the subject's names is Crystal... LaBeja Dixon and they asked her like why she chose that name because Crystal LaBeja is a very famous like drag queen from mm -hmm. the 60s and founder of House of LaBeja and she said oh look up the queen on YouTube and uh, you'll see Crystal's famous read of Sabrina <laughs> which was just kind of a funny like throwback from what you were saying it seemed like they hadn't actually seen the queen in its entirety they've just seen that one clip from the queen of Crystal tearing down Sabrina after Sabrina wins the pageant yeah, of course, kids are more in tune with, like, YouTube clips and things like that than, like, entire documentaries. But they're still aware of this, like, history yeah. of, like, documented queer life. They're not, you know, completely in the dark. Yeah, no, people try and say, like, queer kids don't know the history. And it's not necessarily true. It's just they're very selective about the bits they know. Um, but they are, like, experts on those bits. Like, you know, like, if I want to see somebody do, like, a recreation of that read, like, yeah, I'm going to probably assume it's going to be, like, a 15-year-old who has, like, every single mannerism down and, like, every, like, finger snap and, like, every eye roll, like, perfect. Yeah. Of course. Um, I also saw this movie called Gracefully, mm -hmm. uh, which was a documentary about this Iranian man who used to dance in women's clothing as, like, an artistic profession. And since the Iranian revolution that has been outlawed for several reasons, uh, just dancing in general was outlawed on like moral stance. And 
add on the fact that he was doing it in women's clothing as a female impersonator was like a whole other level of like, you can never do this again. So it's kind of what we didn't get from the Cassandra Alexotico documentary. It's kind mm-hmm. of just the straightforward document of this man's life. He's like a cow farmer in Iran with these like six adult sons and this wife who his entire family is just kind of like unsure how much they can praise or deride his like passion for basically his version of drag without hurting his feelings or without getting him in trouble. Mm-hmm. And he is just sad because he has all these like beautiful clothes and like these beautiful dance routines that he can't really exhibit anymore. He finds like wedding celebrations and um, nursing home visits and like small little ways he can get out there and still do this. And whenever he does, it's this gorgeous display. And whenever he's not doing it, he's just sort of like toiling away on this like cow farm. And he's never named either, like I guess for his own safety. Yeah. It's kind of amazing he's even alive, much less like still finding ways to perform publicly in his own small ways. When you were saying, like, because, you know, the Iranian Revolution was not, like, recently. It was, you know, my life, my lifetime ago. Yeah. Uh, more than that. So the people who know those traditional dances, most of them are dead. Like, the women who knew how to do all those dances, they don't know anymore. Either they're too old and have forgotten the steps, or they were never taught those dances in the first place. So he's kind of this, like, expert on this traditional Persian, like, Iranian dance tradition that's just kind of gone like in that way like it's kind of an archaeological like anthropological sort of thing yeah he's like a living archive also i think even before the revolution it was like very limited when women could dance in public yeah so even then like the reason he was doing this stuff so well and like basically getting famous for it to the level like where he was in like iranian movies and things uh, was because he was allowed more freedoms as a man to do this stuff in public. Yeah, it's kind of like how like men played the women's parts in like Shakespeare and exactly. like, you know, like in singing in like the Catholic Church. Like, and I like that the movie knows how valuable it is to document this person mm-hmm. and doesn't overstep in trying to like either explain too much or overpower his artistry with its own you know fussiness. Like, yeah. It's a very like straightforward document. But when he, when he does dance, that's when the movie gets, like, really artistic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is him at night with, like, just one soul light. Almost like dancing in this, like, black void. Like, this, like, Lynchian mm-hmm. nothingness, you know? And it's just this one beautiful person in these, like, gorgeous clothes dancing in this, like, black space. I don't know. It's just very beautiful. And it was one of my favorite things I saw at the fest. Cool. Also, just because, I don't know, I guess I have this, like, very Western, modern version of drag in my head. Which is still changing, like, growing up it was all, like, southern pageant drag, and now it's this other, like, weird club kids thing that's sort of spreading out throughout drag artistry. And then this is a whole other version of drag that's, like, so far outside of that frame. No one ever says the word gay in the movie, no one ever says the word drag. Mm-hmm. You still recognize it as what it is. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see, like, a whole other version of, like, femme gender performance in this, like, artistic light out there in the world. Yeah. It's cool stuff. Also saw this movie called Hunting for Hedonia, mm-hmm. which a lot of that was set at Tulane University in oh. New Orleans. I didn't know uh, that. Weird. Because this scientist, Dr. Robert Heath, was researching in the 50s at Tulane deep brain stimulation. Oh, that one. The scientist had a dedication to trying to rid mental institutions of the era from like overcrowding and of lobotomies mm-hmm. it was a very hellish time for mental institutions yeah and the way he wanted to get around that was to electrically stimulate the brain mm-hmm. and locate where pleasure is in the brain and insert wires there mm-hmm. and send these electric pulses that like correct depressive and suicidal behavior and it works is the fucked up part <laughs> like it makes people happier this Dutch documentary is sort of reviving this work because he immediately overstepped all these like ethical boundaries and like got into MK Ultra experiments and gay conversion therapy, quote unquote, uh, abuse, and other like really fucked up applications of this like technology that works because of these like almost like mad scientist experiments that it went into. His work was, like, discredited and, like, left off the record, almost. Yeah. I forgot which documentary you were talking about. But, yeah, like, I knew about him because I do work for Tulane. But, like, yeah, like, his work has been largely discredited. The deep brain stimulation stuff that he pioneered. 
people pretty much just stopped doing any experimentation in that for a good 40 years. People have only recently started picking that stuff up again because, yes, he was so notorious internationally for his experimentation that he should not have been engaging in that it completely destroyed the credibility of the previous work he had done. And that's what's scary about the movie is now people are getting back into it because Mm -hmm. it does work. Mm -hmm. And there are these like suicidally depressed people whose like only chance to keep living is to have these like deep brain stimulation treatments done on them. And it's working for Parkinson's as well. And like all these like very interesting new applications of the process. But because this guy's work was discredited, these like ethical boundaries are being crossed immediately again. Yeah. And there's a lot of like, theoretical interviews in the movie about how it will be immediately in the future applied for like cosmetic purposes or like you know recreational almost like a drug like having your brain shocked to make you happy the same way that you would like you know smoke a big old joint or something it's like all these people smell money in this like new application of the stuff not knowing the history of how it's already been you know Abused. abused yeah and yeah it paints this very scary portrait of like it's not a question of if it will happen, but when will it be like commodified into this like fucked up thing that oversteps its like medical purposes. You know, it's just an interesting movie because it's got this like historical record of how deep brain stimulation has been used in the past. And also this like scary theoretical stuff about how it will be abused in the near future. Some of it's got like old 50s lab footage. It looks like an old monster movie kind of in mm-hmm. retrospect. Uh, it's also got a lot of rotoscope animation and it's... um narrated by tilda swinton she had that kind of like icy cold clinical narration style so it feels a little bit like a bbc documentary at some points but it also gets into like spooky like mad scientist territory too cool i liked it yeah it's on youtube right now too so you can rent it the uh last documentary i saw was my favorite of the bunch it was called recorder the marion stokes project marion stokes was a new yorker who is wealthy because she invested in apple products at an early time She started off as a librarian in the uh, 50s and 60s in New York City and was kicked out of the profession because of her association with socialist and communist parties and like rabble rousing around like economic uh, political organizing around the time. So she's basically blacklisted from her librarian profession. But she, you know, like I said, became independently wealthy and then used that money to fund this personal archive project that she became obsessed with. Uh, which was recording 24 hours, seven days a week, network television news. And then early cable as well. So broadcast news on like multiple networks on TV on 70,000 VHS tapes over the span of like 30 years. Wow. Most people did not know she was doing this besides her like immediate family. And it wasn't until after she died that people realized like how extensive her archive was. And it was shipped to this like internet archive place. And... This movie is such a vindicating portrait of this person. Like, it's easy to hear all that, that she was, like, hoarding all this, like, network television news on VHS tapes and just think of her as, like, an eccentric hoarder who had kind of lost her mind and didn't really know what she was doing. Maybe stumbled into the significance of the archive, because a lot a lot of those TV stations don't keep as good of records as they claim to. No, a good bit of television is lost forever, especially live television, like, news. What she did was not an accident. She was an archivist and a librarian before she was forced out of the profession. She worked on television herself briefly in this like sort of cable access roundtable show about political stuff, Mm -hmm. um, like leftist politics more or less, and realized watching news, like how news stories were being shaped and turned into propaganda over time. So like early reports of like the Iranian hostage crisis speaking of the same revolution uh would be like redacted later on and then like repurposed and like the way broadcast news was reshaping culture and like shaping narratives to make them more convenient especially with like police brutality stuff there's a lot of stuff about rodney king in here um there's some 9-11 footage in here about how that story took shape she purposefully did this as a political project and uh the movie is very smart about presenting it so that she's not like a crackpot. She was a brilliant person. It would have been very easy for people to later write her off and just be like, this is a bunch of useless VCR tapes taped off the TV. This has no value. This has no purpose. But because, yeah, she was, you know, a qualified archivist who could document her work and 
was savvy about what she chose to record. Like, yeah, no, it's it's yeah. really cool. Diligently committed and consistent. And then like, you know, labeling everything easily. And because when she started recording was the early days of like closed captioning, mm -hmm. they can now take that metadata from the closed captioning on the internet archive and you can like word search for particular topics and it'll pull uh, wow. anytime. It's so brilliant. And because there's just such a wealth of footage, you could make a hundred different movies on a hundred different topics from this archive. Like it's basically an editor's playground. Yeah. So the movie's got so much rich raw material to work with. So on top of it just being this like vindicating portrait of an absolute fucking genius. Like it's also just a really interesting visual work. Cause it's got all this like, cultural history from the last 30 40 years of american life it's just really fascinating I, I loved this movie cool narrative movies i saw one called the great lamp it's a really interesting little like slacker comedy very like classic film fest handheld weird stuff some magical realism i liked it a lot i saw this movie called love cuts which was kind of the same thing except i didn't like it a lot so <laughs> i'm not really gonna go into that one but most importantly this movie jezebel it's about this woman who, in the 90s, her sister sort of roped her into doing cam girl work. So, like, the early days of, like, online sex work uh, in the late 90s. This woman's, like, 19 years old, I think, when she first starts doing it. So she looks, like, very young on screen. It's a little alarming. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're living in this, like, long-stay hotel room piled onto each other. Like, it's like a family of, like, six living in this one extended-stay hotel. Ugh. So it's kind of halfway between Cam, that like horror movie mm -hmm. <laughs> about Cam Girl work, and then halfway The Florida Project. So it's got a lot of like poverty line drama. Mm -hmm. um, it's a real memoir about this woman's life. She plays her older sister in the movie, wow. like her own sister. The one who got her into sex work. Right. And you'd almost expect there to be this like, because she's doing it out of like financial desperation and because... She's the only black girl working in this, like, cam girl circuit. She gets hired by, like, people who do it in this, like, sort of pleasure dome. With, like, you know, because the equipment's expensive. Yeah. She's the only black girl working there, so she has to put up with a lot of, like, racist stuff from the commentariat as people are, like, typing, you know, same abusive anonymous bullshit that's still on the internet today. Mm -hmm. You'd think that because of all that, this would be a very negative, like, expose on, like, exploitation in the cam girl industry. But she's also, like, really honest about, like, how much freedom and autonomy and power and, like, self-identity exploration she got to do through it. So it's a really complex portrait. It's not like the yeah. exploitation and the abuse isn't there, but it's also, like, coupled with this, like, power and pleasure mixed in. Uh, so it's a really complicated drama. I mean, that's kind of how sex work is. It's yeah. both. Like, And I think it's okay to portray sex work that way, to show that it is a complex thing that... Yes, it can be exploitative, but yes, it can also like be yeah a source of pride and power and like a way to yeah totally explore your identity and figure out who you are. So cool. It's really good, and yeah, out of this batch of movies I watched by myself, um, Recorder, the Marion Stokes movie, and this movie Jezebel, which is like this memoir drama about cam girls in the late nineties. Those are both very great. I I put them up there just among like the best movies I've seen all year. Wow. Very cool stuff. High praise. And we'll get into one more, I think, that qualifies for that list in, in our uh, later conversation. Yep. Why should a fellow want a girl like her? A frail and fluffy beauty. Why can't a fella ever once prefer a solid girl like me? She's a frothy little bubble with a flimsy kind of air. And with very little trouble, I could pull out all her hair. Oh, oh, why would a fellow want a girl like her? A girl who's so unusual. Why can't a fella ever once prefer a usual girl like me? We did get a chance to see three feature films together. Mm-hmm. One was a documentary mm -hmm. called Singular, which was, we went to go see basically because we liked the subject a lot. Yeah. We stumbled into this person's performance at Jazz Fest a few years back. They were singing in the blues tent. And the sole reason why we went in there is because it was hot and the sun was shining on us and we needed to sit. Usually the blues tent is like kind of a wasteland of like middle-aged white men playing Chicago style blues. And it's just not my thing at all. And so like, 
we just stumbled into her performance and she was such a freaking delight that yeah we went to go see this documentary about her solely because we love her her name is Cecile McLaurin Salvant. Mm-hmm. She is a Haitian American resident of Miami. Yeah. Her family is Haitian and French, I think, but she's yeah. American. Her her mom is from France. Her dad is from Haiti. Yeah, she grew up in Miami. The movie is just about her art. Uh, it is mostly centered on this Miami concert where she's like just sort of doing her thing, mm-hmm. and then there's a bunch of talking heads explaining why she's so good. And there's a bunch of home footage, you know, showing her growing up into this legend. She's a jazz vocalist. She has very closely cropped hair and wears these giant art glasses frames. Like Mm -hmm. her glasses game is beautiful. Yeah, no, she's always got like new crazy looking frames and I love them so much. She sings these like aggressively sexual and subversive songs Mm -hmm. that you don't realize how filthy they are immediately because the style of jazz vocal she's doing is very old and historically the music is very sexual and playful in that way but it's not until you listen to the lyrics very closely until you realize like oh god this is the filthiest song i've heard in so long yeah it's like when a new type of music comes out parents are always concerned they're like oh it's too sexual for children blah 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 but then 50 years later that's the oldies like that's classic music so you kind of forget how dangerous the music was when it came out and she's here to remind us like no lady day was singing filthy songs about sex bessie smith was singing filthy songs about sex like they're all singing filthy songs about sex the work is great yeah no she has an incredible voice like her vocal range is great her style is great but really what's so good about her is her sense of humor and her ability to emote while singing she's telling you a story she's drawing you in she's embodying the character of the song and she's funny and playful and sexy and angry and scary (laughs) and like she gets to be all these different things and i think like because she is so good at getting you to feel an emotional connection to her that's like one of the reasons why she's so successful at what she does. Yeah, she commands an entire room, no matter how big the room is. Mm-hmm. Like, There's so much quiet pauses between each line. And when you hear a modern performance from her, there's like no chatter in the background. Like It Mm-mm. just like goes dead silent if she's not talking. She has everyone's attention. She commands everything. This is a very boring movie, though. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Like, a fascinating person. Yeah. But she herself doesn't even get to talk as much as I would have liked. There are a few great scenes with her where she's explaining, actually, so yeah, I might be like professionally a vocalist, but really I see myself as a historic scholar. And I spend most of my time when I'm not performing going to libraries and archives and finding out about the lives of the people who you might not remember from these periods. She had this really long not rant, but like lecture, academic lecture about this person she's currently fascinated with, who was one of the biggest performers of his day who sang in blackface but was also a black man and she's like i'm so angry about his work but i'm also so fascinated with his work and this weird paradox he found himself in where he was making more than you know al jolson and like all the other people who did blackface at the time but then he himself is like doing this awful thing and it's just an academic lecture from her she just she just gave us like a quick like five minute lecture on the history of like blackface and jazz in the 1920s uh and that part was just so thrilling for me like watching her like tell me about jazz and it's buried kind of late in the movie Mm -hmm. and also buried is like her talking about her cartoon work she does she has this like lobster woman character that she yeah she she does really beautiful little drawings and um watercolor paintings you could tell that for her she likes singing and she's really good at it but she did not plan on becoming a singer. People in her life are saying, yes, she always planned on this. This is what like she was definitely gonna do. We knew from when she was a small child, she was gonna do this, but you can tell from her. She's like, no, I was gonna become a librarian and maybe an artist. And I was going to school for like, I don't know, like business or something like really generic. Uh, and then all of a sudden she started booking gigs like while she lived in France. Right. And I guess that part's kind of interesting. You see like, her go from this normal, talented, but like kind of safe, unconfident singer who's like winning these competitions, she's like unsure why she's even there, to the brilliant artist that she is now. That transformation is kind of interesting, like what confidence can do and like 
how much more personality she gets to express with this art now that she's like commanded it. Mm-hmm. But overall, like I'd rather her either talk about the weird shit she's interested in now, the lobster woman and like the racial caricature and jazz history and all that stuff. Or I'd rather just see a concert movie where this like art is being recorded at length. Cause the way it is now you get snippets of songs and then you get all these talking heads sort of interrupting her and telling us how great the song is instead of actually getting to hear it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, honestly, no offense, but her story is not that interesting. She was a kid and then later she took singing lessons and her singing instructor believed in her and made her do shows. And then her mom really believed in her and forced her to do a bunch of contests she didn't want to do. And then she unexpectedly won a contest as a nobody from nowhere. And now she's famous. It's like, yeah, that's kind of everyone's story. I don't know. It's not like, you know, like she grew up in this terrible situation and she overcame it. No, she had a pretty normal situation. And I guess she overcame that. I didn't think I was going to win a Grammy. And then I won a bunch of Grammys. Yeah. Like that's (laughs) That's the story. Not that interesting. I mean, it is really cool that she won the Thelonious Monk Award. The Thelonious Monk contest is a competition that happens every year, but every year it's a different focus. So like one year it's piano and then one year it's vocals. And so it might be years and years and years before you get a chance to do your thing there. And she went in and won and like everybody's like, she's never performed in the United States. We have no clue who this person is. How the hell did she win this competition? And I mean, it's obvious how, uh, but so ever since that, she's been famous essentially because she did this coup where she like overthrew this, like, you know, all these reigning jazz singers and she just walked in and was better than all of them. But even then, like watching that footage, it almost feels like she's still doing like normal jazz stuff. And then there's yeah. like this like light switch moment. And I, I don't even know if it's on screen, but like, no, no, she goes from being kind of okay and like not confident to the thing she is now which right. is amazing and so just fascinating to watch because she does lecture in between each song she gives you a little bit of background um she tells you like the first time she heard the song or her emotional connection to it or a weird thing about the person who originally sang it so her actual performances are part lecture part singing and it's just so cool watching that and i guess the doc is interesting or at least useful in like spreading more awareness that she's around and doing this work like if you've never heard of her before it's like here this like nina simone level genius is like alive and working right now and you can access her very easily but the doc's only interesting as its own thing because it's so boring and like rigidly structured and like not that interesting and then anytime she sings and you see her like modern work, it colors outside the lines immediately. Like yeah. her work is just too weird for something this structured. So I kind of liked it for that contrast. Like mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, this is fucking subversive and aggressive and just odd. Uh, and no matter how much you try to package it as this like uh, sort of normal jazz. thing. Jazz. Respectable people like jazz. Jazz is the thing you listen to at brunch. No, it's this weird horny nightmare that she's uh, <laughs> performing. It, it's really cool though. She makes Disney songs sound filthy. Like she sings the Sep Sisters Lament from Cinderella. And it's like such a petty, jealous, cruel song. But also you feel so bad for those poor stepsisters because yeah, like nobody will ever like a woman who's ugly. No one will ever like a woman who is a little bit stupid. Nobody will like a woman who laughs and snorts when she laughs. Bummer for you. Sucks to be you. You should have been Cinderella. And it's just like, oh, oh, no, we were cheering for Cinderella. We shouldn't have been. I feel bad now. (laughs) I love her art. She's great. Mm. Movie's okay. Yeah. I mean, if you've never heard of Cecile McLaurin Salvant, I highly recommend you watch the doc just so you can get a feel for her. But then I much more highly recommend you actually just go out and try and see one of her shows live. Yeah. Any chance you can to see her perform live, I, I recommend you take it. And her story is just not done yet. Like maybe yeah. if this was like when her career was winding down, it'd be more interesting, but it feels a little premature. It should have just been a concert movie. Like maybe like 20 minutes of like biographical info to get you up to speed mm-hmm. instead of 50 minutes of it. Right. The documentary was barely an hour. And I looked at my clock multiple times, which is not good. (laughs) Well, speaking of looking at the clock, uh, we also saw this movie called The World is Full of Secrets. That movie deliberately tests your patience. Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) I liked it, though. (laughs) I liked it. No, no, I liked it. But half the audience walked out. Easily, yeah. Easily. 
it's almost a version of slow cinema, which mm-hmm. is this thing where there's a lot of like static camera shots where the camera just doesn't move and nothing happens on screen. The concept of slow cinema is that if there's no action on screen and you're watching these like 15 minute shots that don't move, then when something does happen, like the smallest fluttering of action, then it means the world, you know? And this one does kind of a similar thing, except it's all uh, monologues. Mm -hmm. It's a fictional piece. It's set in the 90s at a sleepover in suburbia. And these teen girls try to scare each other by telling the most brutal, fucked up stories they've ever heard. The stories are sort of invariably about women getting killed and punished and maimed. Yeah, no, it's all stories have to do with violence against women because, of course, the scariest thing that teenage girls can imagine is fucked up shit happening to them. Um, One of them involves, like, the martyrdom of early Christian saint. Another one involves, like, the Holocaust. Yeah. A bunch of them involve, like, serial killers raping and dismembering girls. And they're told in these sort of slow cinema-style things where it's just a close-up of these sort of, like, non-professional teenage performers unbroken talking for, like, 15, 20 minutes at a time. And it's it's a, an extreme close-up. You don't see their neck. You don't see their shoulders. You literally just see their face. It's so close-up. But then, at the same time, they shoot it really, like, romantically with, like, glamour shot-style soft focus. And then everything's lit by candlelight, and they're all putting on makeup and, like, wearing flowers, and, like, they look so angelic, but then also it's very dark and scary, and they try to play uh, Bloody Mary, and it does not work, and it's terrifying. Yeah, and that stuff, I think, is where it works out for me, too. Like, you sort of get put in a trance by these, like, long monologues to where I got, like, delirious watching this movie, and then... In the moments where they do these, like, sort of occultish rituals that, like, light as a feather, stiff as a board kind of thing, I start to question what I actually saw. Like, did I see a skull appear on the screen? Did I see Satan's talons reach in from out of the frame? Or did I imagine that? It put me in this, like, really, like, dreamy space almost. Yeah, because I saw something differently in the scene that you saw. Like, I didn't see a skull. I saw a person's face, a specific person's face. Very but weird. like with like makeup and stuff and it was like terrifying so no like they do kind of weird things it is really the plot itself is really frustrating because the framing device is that an elderly woman is narrating about a specific night that night that these girls are having their summer party she's one of the survivors of that night something terrible happens but we never get to know what terrible thing happened we only see all the events leading up to the terrible thing we know which two were victims by the end of it but we don't know what happened to them. That's it. And I like that for two reasons. One, it's very playful. Like, mm-hmm. the narrator is this old woman, and she's like, it was the summer of 1996. And her voice is so ancient. So, like, <laughs> if you were 14 in the summer of 1996, you're not 90 today. So the movie's technically set well into the future? And she interrupts their story sometimes. She's like, this point in their story, we were getting bored. Uh, so I don't know. It's very playful. I think this like narrating thing. Yeah. It's letting you know the movie's not this like academic exercise or it, it kind of is, but it's also like having fun and fucking with you deliberately. Yeah. No, like the reason why some of these stories are boring is to fuck with you. Yeah. Um, and then like the narrator will swoop in and be like, this part sucked. So let's just skip to the end. Yeah. Like some stories do get cut short. Yeah. Even though a lot of them we are didn't hear the lives. Holocaust story. We just know that it was a fucked up story about something that happened during the Holocaust and everyone died and the women all got murdered and raped. So, so that's the other reason I like this though, because, okay. So, you know, the movie's fucking with you a little bit and you know, all these stories have this like common theme of just women being punished for being young women for the most part. Mm-hmm. The way the movie's set up, you're told that at the end of this night, these, like, four girls are going to experience this act of violence that, like, shatters their, like, suburban world, you know? Yeah, and they never again feel safe. Because of that setup in fiction, what you want to see is the payoff of that promise. Yeah. So as you're listening to these stories of, like, women being punished, and you start to realize, like, I'm looking forward to this act of violence to happen to these innocent people... Like, that's fucked up dark Mm -hmm. impulse that, like, fiction or the way fiction is structured gets out of me. Yeah. I don't know. It's almost like a joke on you at the end when you don't see that. It's like, we don't need to see that. There's too much. Oh, you know what happened after that. You can read the police reports. Bye-bye. Yeah. That's literally how the movie ends. (laughs) (laughs) 
Which probably is better to know that going in, maybe, because yeah, a lot of people felt like they were upset. just so pissed. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? That's that's on you. That's on yeah. you for feeling frustrated. It's like um, the reason why people hated Pal and Pressburger's Peeping Tom was because by the end of the movie, you're rooting for the serial killer. They tricked you. You're like, no, I don't want this poor young man to get caught. His father fucked him up, and that's why he keeps murdering people. If he got psychological help, he'd be okay. It's like, no, you're now cheering for a serial killer who murders young women to make it to the end of the movie. And so people were outraged. Outraged that they could trick us into sympathizing with this monster. And it's like... Well, that's on you. Yeah. <laughs> that's why you're mad because you liked somebody you weren't supposed to like. Yeah, this is kind of dealing with like ugly impulses in audiences. Yeah. And I think it gets away with that because it's playful mm-hmm. and because it's about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like anytime you have that many like long, unbroken monologues, your mind's going to drift to like the act of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I just found it like an interesting experiment. Yeah, no. And I thought all the young actresses, like it felt like they did all those monologues in one take. Um, apparently they didn't. Apparently there was multiple takes, but the way they would stumble over the words, almost like they were still reading lines Sounded like really weird and robotic, but also it worked for the what they were doing with it. Yeah, it felt like an experimental, like almost Andy Warhol type thing. Like Yeah, like they had forgotten what the words meant. They were just so used to saying them over and over and over again. And so they're saying them really weird. Yeah. The emphasis is on all the wrong lines sometimes. But that kind of forces you to actually listen to the story instead of just like the rhythm of the story. Forces you to focus on the actual words she's saying. You're like, oh no, this is bad. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it ends up being this sort of, like, experimental version of, like, a horror anthology. Yeah. Where instead of vignettes, you get these, like, long monologues that are, like, weirdly performed. Almost flatly performed in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, again, like, it's like they were still reading the lines. Yeah. Except I know that at least one of those takes, they took 16 takes. And they used, like, the middle one. That's insane. I was like, no, it felt like she was reading all those lines for the very first time. It's like, how did they get it to sound that way then? I think you can tell whether or not you'd be frustrated by that, but it's it's an interesting movie. I think, mm-hmm. it, like as far as like horror goes, it at least has something to say about what we expect and how we get off on these stories, and like who is the victim in them. The world is full of secrets. Would you recommend that to to people? I, I can't give it like a blanket recommendation. I can't I guess. give a blanket recommendation. They try to describe it. The New Orleans Film Fest tried to describe it as like a deconstructed "Are You Afraid of the Dark." I think is a good way of describing it. It's very much the aesthetic of the film. But yeah, no, it's fucking with you. If you're okay <laughs> with your movies fucking with you and if you're okay with wrestling with your own dark impulses about like how you really want to see young women get torn apart on film, then yeah, you might enjoy this. But if you're easily frustrated and your attention might wander and you have a phone in the same room as you, I don't recommend it. Oh, yeah. You can't have a phone in the same room as you. You will pick up your phone and ruin the movie. For sure. Um, it's purposefully boring you. It's purposely going to bore you. So <laughs> I don't know. How patient are you? There is one movie I think we would give a blanket recommendation oh, for absolutely. this festival. Absolutely. This was our favorite thing collectively. I'd say it was my favorite thing individually, too. Yeah, no, um, this might be one of my favorite movies of the year. Hell yeah. It's called Swallow. It's about Pika. Pika or Pika, if you're not familiar with it, is the psychological impulse to swallow things that aren't food. Um, Some people eat paper. Some people eat nail polish. The protagonist in this film, played by a luminous, amazing, emotive Haley Bennett, she is a young pregnant woman who starts to swallow objects, small objects at first, things like marbles or rocks, you know, just normal kind of innocuous things that you can pretty easily swallow. And it, as she feels like she has less and less control over her own life, she starts to swallow more and more dangerous objects. Thumbtacks. Thumbtacks. Double A batteries. Double A battery. Oh, what got caught in her throat? Oh, it was like a, a long nail or something. Like one of those like eyeglass screwdrivers. It was, yeah, it was an eyeglass screwdriver she tried to swallow. That didn't work. The upper half of a ceramic figurine, like the top of an Avon perfume bottle. <laughs> 
like the Avon thing's funny too because she has this like fifties housewife thing she's doing. Mm-hmm. She's Beautiful, almost wearing like perfect. June Cleaver drag. Yeah, she's wearing the Dior new look style, so cinched waist, big full skirt, very perfect uh, blonde bob, very nineteen fifties. But the whole thing is set in modern day and looks very modern. Um, the cinematography is very crisp, very gray, has almost a Japanese look to it um, in the way that it's shot crisp architecture in this like modernist house she lives into mm-hmm. in upstate new york like on the hudson river like in one of those commuter like wealthy croton on hudson type communities so she lives in the perfect house mm-hmm. supposedly she's an artist but we never see her drawing Mm-mm. um she's married to the perfect husband this like rich man who's about to inherit its dad's company she gets pregnant at the perfect time after they're married so she has this like classic American nuclear family cycle that's just starting and she should feel great. Instead, she feels like she has no power and autonomy and anytime she talks, people just steamroll over her and have no interest in what she's saying. Yeah, her mother-in-law is just like, you are the most boring thing I've ever encountered. Please stop talking. She's like, maybe we can have lunch together sometimes because you're my mother-in-law and I don't really have a lot of family. And she's like, just feel lucky that my son decided to marry you and pick you up out of the middle class nothingness you were before today. Yeah, there's a very huge power dynamic that's explored between her wealthy family she's marrying into and her, like, tragic past, which I don't want to get too far into, but, like... No, but, I mean, before that, she worked in retail. Exactly. And they were just like, ew, seriously? You worked in... Like, you worked at, like, The Gap? Disgusting. How dare you even talk to us? And it's like, she's normal. She's just a normal person. Yeah, they're treating her like she married into this wealthy family, like... And this like conniving, like meticulously planned out path. But she's just sort of like stuck in this house with no one talking to her. Yeah. And the more the family controls her, the more she ups the ante of like things she's swallowing. They're concerned for her health because these objects, as they increase in danger, are like endangering her life. Literally. And most importantly, endangering the air she is carrying. Yes. Their concerns are... You know, I think the whole time rather valid. Yes, she is endangering herself. She is endangering the unborn child. But their efforts become less, more and more transparent that they really only care about the child and they could not give a shit. Like, they're, like, practically threatening to lobotomize her, to control her. They're like, look, if you don't behave, we will, like, strap you to a chair for the rest of this pregnancy. We do not give a shit about you. We only care about the child you're carrying. And she's just like, uh, what did I, what did I marry into? Why did I agree to this? Like, and that's what I like about the movie a lot myself is that it is so blatant and vocal about its themes. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, if you're going to compare it to anything, I think Todd Haynes is safe is Mm -hmm. like the most close comparison. And that one, Julianne Moore is suffering from multiple chemical sensitivity. And, you know, she's basically like allergic to modern times and like modern air. But that movie is this sort of like creepy atmospheric experience where you can't really put a finger on what it's saying metaphorically other than like that she's unhappy with the patriarchal modern role that she's assigned. And then that one swerves in this like very weird way where she like breaks out of the pattern and goes to this like commune. In this one, it's not mysterious what the movie's trying to say. Like she'll go to a psychiatrist who says you have pica or pica you are doing this because it allows you to exhibit control over your body. Like it it just sort of states its themes. Yeah. So that in like almost like a straightforward, like horror movie way, you get to deal with the body horror of her swallowing these objects. Like there's a lot of um, Foley of like it's the thumbtack, like scraping it against her teeth on the way down or like surgical. The sound of her swallowing and like, you know, everything you swallow eventually comes out of you. So there's several scenes of like the aftermath essentially. And it's disgusting because she saves all of the objects. She has to rescue them later because she saves all of them and proudly is lining them up on her dresser. And her husband doesn't notice that there's just this accumulation of small, weird objects in the house. He doesn't pay attention to her at all. No, no, he he only notices her when they're having sex. And yeah, that's more or less it. It gets really intensely uncomfortable on just a body horror kind of level. Mm -hmm. But also, and this is what's really fucked up, and I might be a fucked up person for saying this, I was cheering her on because her family is so awful that, like, 
whenever she can sneak away from their control, it's like, fuck yeah, eat those fistfuls of dirt. Like, yeah, <laughs> eat some more rocks. You go, girl. <laughs> it's threatening her livelihood. It's threatening her like health. But you perversely feel a triumph whenever she yeah. gets away with it. Yeah, it's the same thrill. It's the same like, ooh, you got away with something. But yeah, no, I mean, the whole time I was like, please just swallow marbles. Please just swallow small rocks. Don't swallow that thumbtack, girl. <laughs> So yeah, like I didn't want her to swallow dangerous things, but I, I yeah, really wanted her to swallow stuff. Okay, I'm glad it wasn't just me. Like I felt like, uh, yeah, conflict there. Like yeah, the act and the aftermath of her damaging herself was harsh, mm-hmm. and the movie doesn't stray away from that. But the act of sneaking past these like evil controlling people and shoving these things down yeah. her mouth. Did you know all rich people are evil? Oh yeah, they let us know that pretty clearly. There was, like, no good rich person in that film. Not a single good rich person. Yeah, it almost gets to, like, get out levels of, like, class warfare instead of, like, racial warfare towards the end. And I I really appreciated it. I'm not saying it's not an artistic movie. Like, it's lovingly shot. It's color-coded. It's got a visual style to it. But I just liked how on the surface everything was thematically. Mm -hmm. It does what I think horror can do really well in that way. We're like, we're talking about... Deeper issues of the patriarchy and class struggle and um, how psychological damage uh, shows back up in our lives. And yet it's just stylistic and beautiful and yeah, it can be these two things. I think if it didn't have the stylistic element... It would have just been really boring and straightforward. But then if it only had the stylistic side, then it wouldn't really have much to say. So I'm really glad that they didn't go too deep with the plot or any of that. They kept that extremely straightforward and they told you what they were trying to say the whole time. Yeah. And that let them be more stylistic with how they shot. Because, yeah, again, beautiful, crisp cinematography. It's perpetually like late fall at this house like it's always like gray but not really snowing nothing's ever green or alive outside really except for like her very very sad flower bed quote unquote that she is allowed to have and so in order to bring color and beauty into her house she starts covering all the windows with different colored films which like each room has a different like color light in it which just looks gorgeous and, and she color perfect. coordinates her outfits to what room she's in yeah too. it's not super obvious like she steps from one room to the other and her outfit changes but she'll spend more of a day in a different room and her outfit will just happen to match that room's color and then a different day she's spending time in a different room in the house and she's wearing a different outfit that goes with it uh, or she's wearing a neutral outfit that goes with all the colors because the different lights just hit that outfit and make it match it's not like that esoteric like elevated horror uh, I, I know we like that stuff too. It's not some like weird A24 creep out like it comes at night or something. Everything is very straightforward and on the surface, but it's also stylistically beautiful. And even though the themes are not hiding from you, they hit you with full impact. Like I fucking hated anytime her family members were talking and I was squirming anytime she swallowed something dangerous but I was also like sort of cheering her on. And I think there's a subversive sense of humor to the movie as well. Like I was laughing during it because it is so over the top and like straightforward. I had a lot of fun watching this fucked yeah, up movie. No. And, and that's the thing. This one looked the most professional. This one looked like an A24 release. This did not look like an indie film. Well, I mean, indie is a weird, loose, not real thing anymore. So it was an indie film. But like it looked very professionally done. It didn't look like a bunch of students did this. This was a film. And if this had shown in A24's lineup this year, Annapurna's lineup this year, it wouldn't have shocked me. I wouldn't be surprised if Neon picked it up or something. I hope Neon picks it up. I hope Osteoscope picks it up. I hope it gets picked up soon. Um, Because I really want this to hit theaters. Because again, you know, I am a woman in 2019. And it is a fucking hellscape. Um, this film really spoke to me in a lot of ways. Obviously, my life is nothing like hers um, because I do have a really large amount of control over my life. And I feel like, you know, obviously, you know, my partner listens to me because here we are doing a podcast together. And listen, he's not talking over me. Wow. So like, yes, I feel like my life is very different from hers, but I also know those struggles that she's feeling. And I know that hopelessness that she's feeling and just like getting to watch this young actress again, Haley Bennett, you should learn her name now because I feel like we're going to see her in a lot of stuff. I thought she was just so amazing, like such a great performance from her. It's interesting to compare it to Safe because Julianne Moore is like sort of undeniably like one of the biggest powerhouse actors of our time. Yeah, no, I think she's one of the greatest actresses all time but this performance is doing a very similar thing and is its own a whole different 
It's not like she's aping what no, Julianne Moore did at all. No, no. She's a completely different character. Um, I feel like the movie does have a lot to do with safe. I feel like they have a very different mood. There's a different emotional bent to the films. I think that in this case, Hunter is the character's name that is the protagonist. I think she has a certain innocence about her. She really wants things to work out. Like she does not dislike her life. She's very content with it. It's just that everyone else is making it hell for her. Um, whereas I feel like in Safe, Julianne Moore was not satisfied with her life. She was discontented at the beginning of the film, and then it gets worse. <laughs> is it fair to say this one's funnier than Safe? I think so. Okay. Safe is not that funny. Um, because, you know, they are saying something about the AIDS crisis and patriarchy and the feeling that we're all being poisoned. And it, yeah, it's a fucked up, awful message that, you know, is true. Whereas this movie... Everybody is so ridiculously evil that that part's kind of hilarious. It's like, you can't, nobody's really that evil. And it's like, no, really, people are that evil. Like the uh, rich like, dad who, you know, hires his son to be the next CEO in training. He's like, you earned it. Yeah, no. Oh, <laughs> man, he just started from the bottom. And how did he get here? Because he, he earned it. And it's like, no, he didn't. He's your son. You hired him because he's your son. Yeah, I think it allows it itself to be over the top in that way that I thought was funny. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a darkly humorous movie with some really true fucked up things to say about like self-harm and you know class and trauma misogyny abuse, and abuse yeah assaults like all kinds oh, of yeah, things oh yeah it goes like, i don't even want to yeah it goes into some really there's dark some stuff. fucked up things that happen in this film but again i highly recommend watching it so much the ending was so good swallow highly recommend please go watch it i'd say that one and recorder uh, the Marion Stokes documentary and Jezebel were like my three favorite things I saw fest. Yeah. I mean, again, I saw a lot less than you. I would say Swallow was, you know, again, one of my top films of the year. I also really like Bodies Like Oceans, obviously. For um, sure. That one did win the audience award for shorts, uh, narrative shorts or documentary shorts, I guess, in this case. Um, so, no, I highly recommend Bodies Like Oceans. I'm pretty sure that one's available online. It should it be on be Vimeo soon. or... Yeah. Um, look out for that one. Um, but yeah, I really, really hope Swallow gets picked up soon. Yep. And maybe we'll be talking about Swallow more in a couple episodes when we do our favorite films of the year. I would yeah. not be surprised. <gasps> maybe. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, there should be reviews for all 10 features we talked about today on SwampFlex.com. Over the past month, we've been trying to get all this stuff out there. Mm -hmm. We're just, we're, we're so small. We're, yeah, we're doing no. our best. And we really <laughs> just want to give a big thank you to the New Orleans Film Fest for giving us a press pass this year. Um, I also want to give them an additional thank you for um, helping me out. Uh, I work at the Tulane Library, and so I got to do a very small, very modest display highlighting all the films that our library owns that had been previously featured at the New Orleans Film Fest. And they were really enthusiastic about it, and they helped give me materials, and they gave us a bunch of programs to hand out to people, and posters, and promotional materials, and it was just so sweet of them. They, I knew they were so busy, and yet they still took the time to do that, and that was just so lovely of them. So, yeah. thanks, everybody. And I hope we, you know, helped boost some movies that could use distribution, or more attention, or I don't know. I'm glad that we were able to see some of the smaller stuff, and... You know, them giving us a press pass, this like lowly blog, uh, this like access to the stuff to, to help, you know, dig up these like smaller films. I, I appreciate that as well. Yeah. And we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. Bye, Bye. everybody.